Well, amen. Let me uh, invite you to take your Bible and uh, turn with me once more to the little book of Habakkuk, uh, which is a tiny book in the Old Testament uh, found in a section known as the Minor Prophets. Um, I'm taking a break from our study through the book of Acts, and I'll return to that just as soon as we're able to be together again as a church, which I hope will be very, very soon. But given all that's transpired uh, in our world in these recent days, I've really found myself taken up with the message of Habakkuk. And uh, it's a little book that consists only of three chapters, but these chapters pack a powerful, powerful punch. While you're finding your place there, um, one of the arguments that skeptics of the faith will often appeal to, um, it's what some have referred to as the problem of of, uh, evil uh, or the problem of history. And basically, the argument goes like this. If God is as good as the Bible says he is, and if he is all-powerful as the Bible says he is, then why does the world around us seem to be in such a mess? Why is it that evil and injustice seem to prevail? Why is it that bad things seem to happen? And so some will reason that either God is not good or God is not all-powerful. Because if he were both good and all-powerful, then evil would surely be abolished. We know that our experience tells us that evil is very much a reality in the world. Uh, Evil regimes exploit and murder their own people. Uh, Cancer, sickness, disease ravages our bodies. Men and women in their prime become sick and die. Uh, Pandemics bring nations to gridlock. Accidents happen, tragedies happen, and uh, if God is ruling and if God is reigning, then why is the world in such a mess? If he's loving, if he's kind, why does he allow all of these things to happen? Uh, The question then is, where is God in all of this? Well, if you've ever found yourself asking that question or questions like that, then you're in good company because these are some of the very same questions that the prophet Habakkuk faced Uh, some 2,700 years ago. And when Habakkuk looked around at his generation, he saw something that was very troubling. Uh, His country was on the brink of disaster. The economy was collapsing and productivity seemed to be at an all-time low. Uh, Famine, hardship uh, was a possibility. There was violence and social decay that had become commonplace. The law was paralyzed evil was on the rise, Uh, wicked men held the platform, and God's people had forsaken him, they had turned their back on him, they had worshipped idols and other sinful pursuits. Uh, Wickedness and evil could be found among the highest offices of the land. And so Habakkuk lived in a time that was not entirely unlike our own time, a time when everything seemed to be going wrong. He lived in a time of corruption, distress, a time of looming crisis. The nation of Judah was flirting with disaster. And so in the opening verses of Habakkuk chapter 1, we find the prophet Habakkuk crying out to God to intervene. And he wants to know just how long he'd have to cry out to the Lord before he got an answer from God. Um, His name, Habakkuk, it's it's a word that means to wrestle Uh, to uh, grip or to embrace. And really, when you read the book, 
The message of Habakkuk is a fitting illustration. His name is a fitting illustration of his message. He's wrestling with the issues of his day. He's perplexed with God's purpose behind all of of their hardships. And yet his name means to embrace. By the time you get to the end of Habakkuk chapter three, Habakkuk has come to embrace God by faith no matter the circumstance. And so really we take away from the small book of Habakkuk the importance of faith in a time of crisis. And so really the Lord's laid this on my heart for a few weeks. I wanna look at this message from Habakkuk and see how faith is so important for us in these trying times. Habakkuk's message is important because it shows us how God often brings a person from a place of worry to a place of worship. In fact, in chapter one, that's exactly where we find Habakkuk. Uh, He is wringing his hands in worry. Uh, He's looking around at his society and wondering what's happening and where's God in all of the chaos. Well, the Lord speaks to Habakkuk and gives him assurance. In chapter two, Habakkuk moves from a place of worry to a place of waiting upon the Lord. And then by the time the book closes, we find Habakkuk on his knees, worshiping God, expressing his faith and his trust in God's sovereignty, no matter his present circumstances. And really the key verse in the book is found in chapter two, verse four, which simply says the just shall live by his faith. That's a very important verse that's quoted at least three times in the New Testament. The world around us may be wondering what in the world is going on, but those who know God, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, live by that faith. And so Habakkuk didn't like the way life around him was shaping up. Uh, Maybe you can identify He has to come to grips with this question, will I trust in the wisdom of God, in the goodness of God, no matter what happens in life? And folks, that's the same question that all of us must come to grips with. Uh, Habakkuk's a puzzled prophet. And and, and I wanna speak to you really from that subject for a few minutes this morning as we look into Habakkuk chapter one. He's a puzzled prophet uh, who is engaging in a dialogue with a sovereign God. And so what I want to do is I want to walk us through uh, the 17 verses of this first chapter. I want to point out to you a few things as we do that. Uh, To begin with, I want you to notice with me the ignoring of God's law. Habakkuk was puzzled uh, because he looked around in society life there in Judah and uh, the law of God had been laid aside. God's people were pursuing idols. Uh, The nation had been given over to sin and disobedience And this was something that greatly puzzled Habakkuk. Uh, He was crying out to God to do something about it and he wondered just how long uh, he would have to cry out. Look at what he says there in verse number one. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry unto you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. He says the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. So really Habakkuk is pouring out his soul here to the Lord. He's expressing his concern with a gut level honesty that all of us can appreciate. 
And he really paints this grim picture of society, one in which immorality was rampant, the law of God was being ignored, God's truth had been laid aside. Now again, it's important that you remember the context uh, of, any, of any passage of scripture. And context here is very important. Uh, you look into the Old Testament and you consider how the books of the Old Testament are arranged. Uh, you've got the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch. That's followed by about 12 books uh, that are the historical books of the, of the Old Testament. Uh, then you have the poetic books of the Old Testament followed up by 17 uh, pro- prophetic books. You've got major prophets, minor prophets. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. That doesn't mean that his message is less significant than, say, the message of Isaiah. It's just that his message is a lot shorter than Isaiah. Uh, what Isaiah says in 66 chapters, uh, Habakkuk says in three chapters. But the prophetic books cover events that happen in those historical books of the Old Testament. And so we know that Habakkuk's ministry took place prior to the Babylonian invasion of Judah. In 586 BC, it was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who invaded Judah. Uh, He destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He carried away the inhabitants of the city uh, into captivity there in Babylon. And the reason was years and years of idolatry. And there had been prophets that God had raised up to warn his people of the coming disaster. But for the most part, the message of those prophets went unheard and unheeded. And so Habakkuk was one of those prophets prior to the Babylonian invasion who was crying out against the sin of his day. There had been reform in the southern kingdom. King Josiah had instituted a series of reforms, but it was reform and not really revival. Reform happened from the top down, not necessarily from the bottom up, as often is the case with revival. And so Habakkuk is burdened by all that he sees. Uh, He knows that God's people are, um, are, are, are walking away from God. He knows that that can't be good. He's praying that God would intervene in the situation before it was too late. And so verse one expresses his burden with this word oracle. Uh, Burden, ominous announcement. That's what that word means. It means that Habakkuk was a man who was burdened for his generation. He longed for God to send a sweeping revival. Something had to be done to correct society's ills, and yet heaven seemed to remain silent. Habakkuk couldn't understand why God seemed to allow his people to persist in their sin. And so it was into this situation that God sends the prophet Habakkuk with a message. And as we meet the prophet here in chapter one, he's wrestling with God. Uh, He's facing all of these perplexing issues. Uh, Things are happening around him that he doesn't understand. He's troubled by it. He has his doubts. He has his questions, but he entrusts those to a sovereign God. And he begins his message with this question, how long, O Lord? As he looked at society, he asks the question, how long? He's having a difficult time reconciling what he sees with what he knows to be true of Almighty God. How is it that you reconcile the truth of a good God with the reality of evil in the world? Why is it that God seems to be delaying when his people are about to walk off a precipice of disaster? Why is it that God seems to be delaying? Why is it that God is allowing his law to go on ignored? Surely God's going to do something about the situation. 
But to the prophet, it seemed like the Lord was taking a long time. How long, O Lord, will you allow this to keep going on? Well, God's going to answer the prophet Habakkuk, but not in the way the prophet expects. The second thing that I want you to notice in chapter one is this, the instrument in God's hands. The ignoring of God's law, Habakkuk expresses that in the first four verses, but then God begins to speak to Habakkuk in verse five, and he begins to uh, clue the prophet in on the instrument that he's going to use to bring judgment and discipline to his people. Look at verse number five. The Lord answers the prophet and says, look among the nations and see. Uh, Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I'm about to do something that you wouldn't believe uh, if I told you. You wouldn't understand it. And then God gets specific in verse six. He says, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. Now listen to this. They gather their captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. So Habakkuk had been wrestling in his mind and in his heart with all that he saw. He compares it to what he knows to be true of a holy and righteous God. So surely God would do something about the state of affairs in Judah before it was too late. Well, this was merely the beginning of the issue because God is going to answer the prophet's prayer, but not in the way the prophet expects. God would most certainly deal with the sin of Judah, but the way that he would do it involved raising up a nation that had been even more wicked than Judah had been. And so these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, would be an instrument of judgment, an instrument of discipline in the hands of God. God says, I am the one who's raising them up. Now, up until that time, it was Assyria that had been the dominant power in the region. Babylon wasn't really on anybody's radar. That is, until Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, fell to the Babylonians in 612 B.C., And so after that, the Babylonians swept through the earth just as the Lord tells the prophet Habakkuk right here. Warren Wiersbe expresses it this way. Uh, He says, the Babylonians were far more wicked sinners than the people of Judah. So how could God use an evil, idolatrous Gentile nation to punish his own people? Yes, his people deserved punishment, but couldn't God find a better instrument? I mean, this chapter presents us with the God of the unexpected. Uh, And God often does things um, in ways that we don't expect in order for his purposes to be achieved. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Our God is the God of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And everything in life is subject to him and to his omnipotence. 
I think sometimes we get this idea that our God is a God in heaven and when pandemics happen and when crisis happens and when difficulty happens in our lives, we often wonder maybe God is just sitting up there in heaven wringing his hands just wishing things were not as so. Folks, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God who is in perfect control of history. Someone has expressed it this way, history is his story. There is not one detail that happens in history that God is not sovereign over and somehow and in some way God uses to serve his purposes. We may not understand how he does it, but the Bible says that he does it. He's Lord over all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's something that the disciples of Jesus had to learn themselves. For example, you know the story in Mark chapter 4. Uh, where uh, the disciples and Jesus had been out ministering and the uh, evening came and they had to cross the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side. And so they left the crowd, they get into a boat, um, and then as they're out there on the sea, the Bible says that this great tempest arose, this great windstorm. The waves were breaking into the boat. Surely it seemed like the boat was to be broken apart was filling up with water. Jesus is asleep down in the stern. He's asleep on a cushion. And the disciples come to him and they they ask him this question. I can hear their frantic voices even now in my mind. Master, do you not care that we're perishing? Master, do you not realize that there is a storm upon us and it's going to sink this boat? And the Bible simply says in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus awoke. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. In fact, the language there, it's almost like a master speaking to a little puppy. Those of you who are dog lovers, you, you, every now and then you've got to get on to that little dog and you say, hey, quit that barking. And there's something about your voice and the authority that it, that it commands that that little puppy hushes just like that. That's kind of the idea here. And the thing is, the disciples are learning that the storm, it's only after the fact that they learned that the storm was necessary. Because the storm taught them something about the man who was in the boat with them. The fact that he's sovereign, he's Lord, even over the storms of life. If that's not enough, consider this in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 tells us about Jesus and his disciples. They happened to pass a man who had been born blind from birth. And the disciples ask him this question, uh, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was customary in Jewish thinking that someone who had some type of a physical ailment or sickness, uh, surely the reason was sin in that person's life or sin in the lives of his parents. But Jesus says this, he said, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus goes on to give the man sight. In other words, the man's condition was necessary and was part of God's purpose in his life so that you and everyone else might learn something about the power of God. He's sovereign over storms. He's sovereign over sickness. Let me give you one final illustration of this, John chapter 11. Uh, The Bible says that there was a man in Bethany by the name of Lazarus who became so sick that he got to the point of death. And Jesus was friends with Lazarus and and her 
his sisters, Mary and Martha, and they sent word to Jesus and said, hey Lord, the one that you love, he's sick. He's about to die. And when Jesus hears this, he said this illness does not lead to death, it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha, Jesus loved Mary and Lazarus, and when he heard that Lazarus was sick, listen to this, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Lord, we need you to show up because our brother is sick, our brother's about to die. What does Jesus do? Rather than responding immediately to their cries, he waits for two days. Lazarus was about to die. In fact, Lazarus would experience physical death, but Jesus is going to show up and there's a commotion outside the tomb of Lazarus. The sisters are weeping. They don't understand why the Lord took so long to get there. But then Jesus does something that absolutely blows the crowd away. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And in so doing, he proves the point that he is Lord over the situations of life. He's Lord and he's sovereign over storms. He's sovereign over sickness. He's sovereign over our suffering. And this is something that the prophet Habakkuk is having to learn also. The God of the unexpected, the God of the unexplained. Listen, what if God will indeed bring revival to his church, but he brings it in a way that we never saw coming? What if God brings a sweeping revival and a spiritual awakening to America? Many of us have been praying for God to do that. But what if a pandemic is what he uses to bring that about? He's the God of the unexpected, folks. And sometimes he uses painful means as an instrument of discipline in his hands. That's what he's going to do for Judah by raising up these Chaldeans. You know, often we like to focus on the end product while ignoring the process. We want results without requirements. We want the benefit of salvation without the demand of repentance. God uses a variety of instruments. He's done that all through Israel's past. Uh, war and invasion. Uh, God used that to get the attention of the Israelites. Uh, natural disasters and calamities. God would raise up judges and raise up prophets to declare the word of God and declare the truth to his people. All of these were means that God used to get their attention. And so the people of Judah in Habakkuk's day were without excuse. They failed to learn from their history. They continued to persist in their idolatry even though they had been given an abundance of truth. And God says to Habakkuk, yeah, things are bad, but Habakkuk, they're going to get worse. Before they ever get better, they're going to get worse. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans as an instrument of judgment. But make no mistake about it. These Chaldeans are under my sovereign lordship. I will use them to achieve my purposes. I will receive glory. So he uses a variety of instruments. So you've got the ignoring of God's law, the instrument in God's hands. Notice a third thing here in this text and it's the integrity of God's character. You get down there to verse number 12, and once more the prophet Habakkuk cries out to the Lord and says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, we shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He goes on and says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up uh, with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad and then he sacrifices to his net. In other words, Habakkuk is just simply saying these wicked Chaldeans who pride themselves in their own pride and their own strength and their own might, you're giving us into their hands and yet they think that they're the ones who are responsible and they worship their net. They worship their power and their own strength. He sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? So again, these are just the questions that Habakkuk is raising to the Lord. God, you who are a holy God, how can you use such an unholy instrument to bring about your purposes and your means to achieve your ends for your people? These are the questions that he's asking here. He's got a hard time understanding God's ways. Yeah, God's people had been disobedient, but these Chaldeans were far worse. And it was all hard for Habakkuk to comprehend. And so in his mind and in his heart, he goes back to what he knows to be true of the character of God and the integrity of God's character. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? In other words, what he knows to be true of God by way of his revealed character, this is what he clings to in the face of what he does not understand. Folks, what is it that gets you through difficult times and when you're facing problems that you don't understand and you don't understand why God has allowed them into your life? What will get you through those times as a believer is remembering the character of God. You may not understand his ways, but God has sufficiently revealed in Scripture who he is. And there's nothing that will benefit you in life more than this knowledge of God, personal knowledge of God as he has revealed himself to be. Daniel eleven thirty two says that the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. In other words, there are practical benefits that come with this knowledge of God, knowing his character. What are those benefits? Well, confidence is a benefit that comes from knowing God. Gives you the ability to make the right response to the circumstances of life. You know, there's so many people who are, who are wringing their hands with, with this crisis that we're facing as a nation now. You know, I saw something, um, I saw a clip that was coming out of, of Congress uh, from this past week and it showed a, a congresswoman from Michigan and uh, she was ranting and raving about all that was going on. And, you know, the, the one who was presiding over Congress was having a hard time getting her to, uh, to relinquish the floor. And so there was back and forth and back and forth. And there in that chamber, in that house chamber, just above where the presiding member was seated, were these words, in God we trust. And I thought, you know something? Isn't that just a stark contrast right there? Humanity that does not trust in God that doesn't have knowledge of God, wringing its hands in despair over what's going on. And folks, as the people of God, we can live with calm confidence 
because of the knowledge we have of God. God's knowledge of God brings confidence. It brings security in life. The psalmist said it this way, God is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Even though the ground beneath our feet seems to be shifting and changing, God is our solid rock. And this brings me security. Wisdom is another practical benefit of knowledge of God. The, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter one uh, prays this way. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom is heavenly insight for earthly application. It's the ability to know what God wants and then apply it where you live in life. Knowledge of God gives you wisdom. The Proverbs says that it's the, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. This is understanding. And so there's so many practical benefits that are associated with knowing God. And Habakkuk understands this. He may not, he may not understand God's ways, but he trusts God's character. What is it that he specifically says about the character of God here in Habakkuk chapter one? Well, he says first that God is everlasting. He's eternal. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? When the world around him was falling apart, it was the truth of God's nature. This is what brings the prophet stability in the face of such uncertainty. And it gets even better than that. Uh, he, he also knows that God is the self-existent one. Notice there in verse number 12 how at least two times Habakkuk refers to the Lord uh, uh, with his covenant name. Uh, it's, in your English translation, it's uh, all capitals. That word Lord there, it's all capitals, translates the covenant name of God that God had revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter three. Yahweh, I am. That's the name of God here. Um, Habakkuk reminds himself of this because people in his generation were saying that God was dead. Where is God? What is he up to? Uh, he is I am. Uh, regardless of what other people said, Habakkuk is going right back to what he knows to be the truth. God is not at the mercy of nations. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything for his existence. He is the I am. And then Habakkuk acknowledges the fact that God is completely righteous. Uh, he refers to him there as God my holy one, there in verse 12. It's this idea of wholeness. Uh, completeness. It means that God is always consistent within himself. It means that he is who he is. Uh, he always is. He's never different than who he has always been. God has never had a bad day. He has never got up on the wrong side of the bed like me or you. He never needs a day off. He never has to take a vacation. His temperament is not shallow and constantly changing like mine. He's holy, always holy. He's righteous, always righteous, and he's always good. He's unchanging in his character, unchanging in his person. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is truth that Habakkuk can be confident in. And then he mentions that God is all sovereign. He refers to the Lord as his rock or mighty God, as other translations render it. It's the idea that God is all-powerful. 
when the world around the prophet seemed to be sinking in quicksand, all of his confidence is found in the rock, the one who has total power, the almighty God. What an awesome truth. So folks, listen, when the bottom falls out of life, and when the world seems to be coming apart around us, we can be encouraged by the truth of who our God is. We may not understand what he's up to in the world, but we can trust his character as he has revealed himself. Another thing Habakkuk acknowledges here is that God is always faithful. You say, how do you, how do you know that? Well, look at what he says there in verse number 12. Uh, he says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. We shall not die. It's his way of expressing his knowledge of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. He's a God of promise. Uh, He's a God who will never go back on his word. God had made a promise centuries before to Abraham and to Israel that they would be a nation as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, as innumerable uh, as the stars in the night sky. And so the prophet remembers this. uh, He recalls this in his mind. And here's what he says to himself. Uh, God has made us a a promise And so no matter what his intentions are with these Chaldeans, no matter how bad it may have to get, it will not result in our utter destruction because he's a God who made a promise and he's a God who will keep his promise. So he says, I understand that you're raising up these Chaldeans as a means of reproof and discipline, judgment. It's for discipline's sake that he's raising up the Chaldeans against the people of Judah. One person has expressed it this way. When God permits his children to go through the furnace in life, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. God's purposes would not be thwarted. He's got a variety of ways and means to bring discipline to our lives as his children. One person put it this way. I've heard it said that God is never at a lack of carrier pigeons to get his message across. No matter how painful those means may be, they're always expressions of his mercy and his grace because of the end that he has in mind for our lives. So God's law had been ignored. God was using an instrument that Habakkuk didn't quite understand, but his faith, his trust, his confidence was in the character of his God. Now let me just give you just some closing points here by way of just some personal application. All right, uh, maybe you find yourself often facing problems, problems beyond your control, uh, problems that have entered your life, crises for whatever reason, you don't understand the reason God's allowed it, but God's allowed it. How, how do you deal with that? How do you get through that? Let me give you just a few ways. To begin with, you need to really avoid an emotional reaction to the problem itself. An emotional reaction. It's easy for us to want to respond to the situations of life strictly from our emotions. We're emotional creatures. And sometimes we feel certain ways and that leads us to say certain things in seasons of pain and difficulty that later we would regret. One person told me one time that our emotions are the most shallow part of us and they change. Uh, Even within the hour, our emotions can fluctuate and change. So avoid responding to a problem in life strictly from an emotional perspective. 
And then secondly, review the character of God in your mind and in your heart. Remember the character of God. Rehearse the character of God as God has revealed himself in scripture. The sovereign God who's in control of the storms of life and the seasons of life that are painful, suffering in life. God is righteous, God is holy. And then the third thing, apply what you know about God's character to the situation itself. Apply the knowledge of God in a very practical way to the challenges that often come your way in life. And then last, commit the unknown to God in faith and in trust. You may not know the outcome of a particular situation, but listen, you can trust as one who trusts in Jesus Christ that God will ultimately use it for his own glory and somehow for your own good as a believer. So when you look around at the world and you wonder how God could allow viruses and how God could allow cancer and how God could allow wicked people to get in places of power, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the problem of evil? Listen to me. The world as we know it is not the world as God originally made it. Nor is it the world that it will be when Jesus Christ comes again one day in all of his glory. Which, by the way, all that's going on in life right now ought to remind you that we're one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we were yesterday. You see, the world that we live in now is a world under judgment. It's a world that's feeling the effects of the fall. Sin has corrupted uh, the world that God made. It's left it in a broken condition. A world under judgment, and it's a world that's ripe for final judgment. And folks, listen, uh, if you think coronavirus is bad, I hate to tell you, but it's going to get worse before it gets better, according to what God's word says. Because God is a holy God. God will punish and judge sin. But let me tell you good news. God has done something that's totally unexpected. He's done the unthinkable, because at the cross... God dealt with my sin in all of its blackness. And there at the cross of Jesus Christ, my sin has been judged. My sin has been dealt with as God's wrath was poured out upon his son in my place. And so no matter the pain, no matter the problem in life, those of us who are in Jesus Christ can say with Habakkuk, we shall not die. And the only reason we can say that is because Christ died for us and he is risen from the dead. Therefore, don't fear that which can kill the body but can't kill the soul. But rather fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So if you're one of these who have a hard time understanding why there seems to be so much suffering in the world, always wondering if God's going to do something about evil in the world, then my friend, take a good long look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And the greatest need in your life is not material comfort. You know, the gospel is not something that God has given to us to make us uh, comfortable. But it's something that I can always find comfort in no matter what my circumstances in life may be. The greatest need in your life is eternal salvation. Sin is what separates us from God, but God in his mercy and God in his grace gave his only son 
to die on a cross so that we can be saved. And now those who desire to be saved, you've got to repent of your sin. It means you turn away from your sin. Confess your sin to God. Acknowledge your need for God's grace. And believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. And that God raised him from the dead on the third day. You believe in the Lord. You confess the Lord. You will be saved. Because Jesus is our hope of salvation. The cross then becomes the filter. As a believer, it becomes the filter through which I view my pain and my disappointment in life. You know, Habakkuk is going to say at the close of his book, even though the fig tree may not blossom, even though fruit may not be on the vines, even though the produce of the olive fail and yields no food, the flocks be cut off from the stall, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will exalt in God who is my strength. So no matter the circumstances in life, we've got reason to rejoice as those who know Jesus Christ because the Lord is both my salvation and he is my strength. Right there where you are, let me invite you to just bow with me for just a moment or two. If you've never been saved and you'd say, Pastor, what do I say to God? How how can I be saved? Listen, believe in your heart that Christ died for your sins, that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Perhaps you might pray along these lines, Lord, I confess my sin and my need for you. Lord, I can't save myself from my sin, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and that he rose again from the dead. Lord, I turn away from my sin. I turn away from self and I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and in trust. My friend, no person who has ever cried out to the Lord in faith and repentance has he ever turned away. So I rejoice with you this morning if you have prayed to receive Christ as your Savior. Here's what I invite you to do. We're going to close with a song this morning, but if perhaps you've made a decision and you'd like to let me know about it or someone on our staff here at Green Street know about it, would you, would you get in touch with us? You can email us at connect at greenstreet.org. That's connect at greenstreet.org. Or you can call our church office. Uh, if you're on social media, you can send me a note on social media. I'm praying for you. My prayer is that God would have his will and way in your heart and life. So Lord, speak. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.